That phrase, I do believe, help my unbelief, is perhaps one of my favorite phrases in all of Scripture. How many of us have felt that very same thing deep in our souls before? I do believe, help my unbelief. This morning, our discussion is going to be about faith and doubt. Wrongly, I think our Christian culture has fostered a narrative that these two things are antagonistic to one another. Either you have a deep faith or you are filled with doubts. And in turn, we celebrate those who display faith and we worry about, maybe even shame those with doubts. This type of understanding, I think, creates significant pain and confusion in our Christian churches. Let me say this is not how New Community understands the interaction of faith and doubt. Faith and doubt are two halves of the very same mystery. And this morning we intend to explore this idea a little bit more. To do this, we thought we might best serve ourselves by hearing from a few folks within our community. So right now I'm going to welcome up a couple of wonderful people, Meredith Cooley and Eric Grabowski. Let us welcome them to the stage this morning. Our hope is to hear from their experience with this idea of faith and doubt. So let's start just with a, uh, <clears throat> a little quick intro. If we wanted to know you, if this community wanted to know you, what would we need to know about you? Give us uh, just a few uh, moments here. I don't dance and I don't sing. Okay, that's good. Good start. <laughs> but, and that's true. Um, yeah, about me, my wife Kendra is back there. We have three children, two boys, 25 and 22 and a 20-year-old daughter, so we're pretty recent empty nesters. Um, let's see, I'm engineer by trade, I'm a business owner, um, I'm middle-class white male, <laughs> you know, which <laughs> maybe is obvious, but um, it, it's been a challenge, honestly, over the last few years, and outside of that, I would say, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of a analytical person, but I'm personable, and I'm the one engineer that can actually talk and look to you in their eyes most of the time. So yeah. anyways, that's a little bit about me. Hi, I'm Meredith. I love to dance. <laughs> um, I am nervous. I feel really vulnerable this morning, so just going to get that in the open. Um, I moved here about 10 years ago, and uh, I had, I'm married to Blake. We've been married a long time, like 14 or 13 or something years. I've got four kids, and um, they're all really young. The oldest is nine, so between nine and three. And uh, we love Spokane. We moved here to help plant um, Inland Church, which was a small church downtown. And um, that dissolved in 2020, and soon after that, uh, a lot of our community joined New Community. So here I am. Great. Um, and let me just say, totally fine to be nervous, uh, because this, I think, is a very vulnerable topic. Uh, but we want to approach this topic with transparency and honesty, because that's really the only way that um, discussing these things helps and uh, can be healing. So. Uh, First question, two-part question, and um, maybe you start because you've already got the mic if you're comfortable with that. When did faith become an important uh, or significant part of your life? And then secondly, when uh, or maybe what were the circumstances, the reasons that led that to be overshadowed by doubt in your life? Uh, so faith was always a really big part of my identity. I grew up in a really safe loving Christian home, and um, it was just like generations and generations of Christian family, um, so from a, like a really long line, that was something that was 
um, really strong part of our family identity. I grew up in the South in the Bible Belt, so uh, it felt like a really homogeneous atmosphere. As I get older, I think, well, maybe it wasn't as homogeneous as I thought, but that was my experience as I was a kid. Um, so faith was always really important to me. When I moved up here to be a part of um, Inland Church, we um, started this community of really diverse, messy, beautiful, raw. It's hard to even describe the community that I was a part of. Um, but there were so many different perspectives and so many different people that I respected their opinion and their opinion was totally different than mine. And it just started being like, okay, well, one thing that felt really black and white is starting to turn gray and my really dualistic mind was like, well, what do you do with that? And if that is gray, then what else is gray? And um, it just began to crumble. Um, so I felt like I wanted to hang on to my faith. Um, it wasn't like a streak of rebellion in me that I wanted to let go of my faith. It felt like I just couldn't hang on any longer. The questions were too loud and too big, and I was really grappling um, and struggling to hang on, and it just it felt like in a moment it just all fell apart. I would say I'm nervous too, <laughs> uh, or scared. I, I just my own hang-up talking about doubt in church is nothing I ever thought I would do, and and just to be open and not have to conclude it necessarily. Um, if I go back to where my faith started, opposite of Meredith, I. I did not grow up going to church. Um, my parents were disillusioned from the Catholic Church and stopped going when I was like four years old, and so I heard that. But um, I think my parents were always like, they kind of were products of the 70s and said, hey, do whatever, you know, learn things, do whatever you need to do. And they were very open to me doing what I wanted. Now I had pretty much no interest in church Christianity, whatever, and would probably make fun of it when I was younger. Well, in my early 20s, and and then when Kendra and I started dating and then got married, I, I did have, I had a lot of longing to find God, and so I started um, reading and started reading the Bible. We started attending church, and, and um, I th you know, so in my, probably my mid-20s, I really came to faith, and, and then it was, I couldn't, I'd longed, I didn't realize I'd grown up, but I really longed for just answers and having structure and having things be concrete and black and white, and so I really thrived and loved um, these ministries I was a part of for a while, and and that was a great thing, and I didn't have that growing up, so they, these kind of simple answers and structure was, was what I longed for, and it was great. And then, of course, life leads and things get messy. Actually, my wife and I were in the ministry and were interns in a church after, being, after I was really a, just a young Christian, so wasn't really prepared. It wasn't, you know, exactly what we wanted, wasn't best for us. I don't think it was my calling, so after about two years, um, we were doing that full-time, got out of the ministry, and I went back into engineering. So that was one area where there was massive amount of doubt in my life, and kind of as I've looked back, I'm 55, so I've had <laughs> a lot of highs and a lot of lows. It does seem like every time there's major trauma, transition, something in my life, that has caused me to doubt, and then I get scared and all the stuff. So recently, being empty nesters, I think all of our kids, um, I don't want to speak their story for them, but they're, they're challenged in their faith, or they don't have a faith, or they're not sure. And 
And, and then throughout COVID, I, I honestly think being a business owner, being the age I am, having uh, the privileges I have, I, I feel like I've been grouped in a certain group. And then I doubt myself and, you know, you know, what do I do and why has God put me in this place? And um, even uh, I think a lot of the traditions that I've been ingrained in and I've taught in other churches, uh, you know, could be on topics of LGBTQ or other just black and white issues. Um, same thing, it, it, there's a lot of gray out there and, and life has caught up to me and humbled me and, and uh, so those are some of the sources of doubt and if you ever wanna to talk to me, I've got lots of things that have come <laughs> up in my life but I won't go on about it, so yeah. So uh, maybe as a follow-up to this, um, so a part of a church at a very young age, so you know, like a kind of growing up in the church context and then in church later on in life, how um, previous to your time here at New Community, how was your church experience, your church tradition, how did it support faith or how did it talk about faith in ways that were either helpful or maybe not helpful? Um, <clears throat> so when I think back about kind of how my upbringing has supported me, through doubt, that's kind of how I understood the question, but um, a book that I read and reread called Whole Child, Whole Parent, um, she expounds on this Buddhist parable, and the parable is about you're on one side of the river and you're needing, you come to a point in your life where you need to cross the river, and you need to build yourself a raft to be able to get from one side to the other. And they talk about there, you can use anything buoyant on your side of the river to help you cross, that there's no advantage to only using pine, only using maple. And I feel like through my faith struggles, I have had to use anything buoyant, whether wherever it has come from, and many, many things that I learned as a child still float and are still helping me to get to my other side. It doesn't mean that I've had to, because I have let go of a lot, but I haven't had to let go of everything because there are still things and people in my life who still float. And I love that even in the Bible, it's like, we have our own float test. Jesus says that if they produce, if something produces the fruits of the spirit, that it's true. And that can be our float test. When we're trying out, when we're making our raft to get to the other side, we can test out new thoughts and new ideas. And some, you have permission to test them. You have permission to see if they sink or if they float. We have permission to look everywhere, and so that said, sometimes I wonder that if God, through my deconstruction, was like, got rid of one structure and gave me complete permission to find God everywhere, to use anything that floats from any beautiful human from any beautiful source, and um, I have permission to be wrong, to try something and test it and be wrong. And um, so all that to say, many things that I grew up with still float, and I still get to use those things. Let's see, previous to new community, um, yeah, early on in my life as I shared since I didn't go to church, um, there, honestly, from my parents and a lot of people I knew and teachers, I got a deep sense of just seeking the truth, right? And so, 
and I spent a lot of time actually outdoors and hiking and, and always had some longing for something bigger. So I honestly think a big part of the foundation of my faith had nothing to do with people really who were Christians, but just who, who encouraged me to think about ideas and seek, seek truth and, and, and find good things. And, and then as I shared, when, when I got into my 20s and, and you know, uh, found God, really, um, what I, I saw, I, we had a lot of support and a lot of friends. And when I look back, uh, rather than look at different churches we attended, I think it was more individual people when, when I can think back on several people in my life that, that loved me, loved me through sin, loved me through doubt, were just friends, would support our family. Um, to me, those were, were obvious signs that they were gifts of God, and, and these were people that kind of loved me unconditionally. I definitely think reading the Bible helped me. Uh, when I became, uh, or, early, or in my mid-20s, I remember reading the Gospel of John, and it kind of freaked me out, but inspired me at the same time, and, and it just seemed very real. Um, every, every kind of commentary I've read over the last 20 years that's, that's talked about somebody who's just been, I guess, real and vulnerable has... It always encourages me. It always makes me question and makes me think. Um, but but it seems to me, I, you know, so I kind of see just different individuals that have really supported my faith, and they and they really tended to be the ones who would listen and pray and be a friend and and not kind of seek to yeah. push answers. Yeah. So <clears throat> one of the things you both identify is there are. Um, there are individuals, things that, that have kind of supported that along the way, right, or have kept you afloat. I love that image, uh, kind of help keep you afloat. But then there are also have been seasons uh, of serious, significant doubt where maybe you feel like some of those structures, those people, those ideas are less available. Um, in those times, what, what has been most challenging for you personally about carrying that doubt? Uh, or living kind of within that uh, that season of doubt and and maybe it's personal it's relational it's spiritual it's you know familial but w identify maybe some of the hardest most challenging parts of that um, I even though I kind of thrive on doubt <laughs> um, I don't like it it's uncomfortable and then I would say especially over the last 20 years of being a Christian, I think doubt is something that you can talk about, but you've got to get over quickly. You've got to move on. You've got to get a process, a book, a step, whatever. And when, I, when times are tough or when doubt feels stronger, um, I feel less sure of my faith because of kind of that hang-up. Um, I think I feel insecure, I get, I feel humbled, um, you know, I, yeah, it, I, it's just an uneasy feeling, right, so, and I've actually been seeing a, a counselor for like the last year, year and a half, and uh, that's been a good, safe place for me to explore, just kind of not dwelling on it necessarily, but being able to, yeah, be real with, with my thoughts and my doubts and kind of life and maybe a little bit of faith on that side. Um, I think it's, it's hard, too. Some of my friends from a previous church community, they really wanted to kind of share and hear about some of my struggles, but um, I, I've, it's been hard because they immediately want to go to a three-step program on how to Let's fix, fix it, yeah. how to correct me, <laughs> yeah. how I should think about it. And, and I, 
well-intentioned. I mean, people I love and I, and I get, but, um, but that's hard. I can't, that, that doesn't help me all the time. I'm not against advice, but it doesn't help me all the time. Um, yeah, and I, I think uh, when I doubt and I don't have others alongside me to maybe listen or, or a community that can help, um, I, I do. I start feeling distant from God, and I start, it's harder to, to pray and, and all of that. So, um, yeah, it's, I don't like doubt, but I know it's, it's part of me, and especially, you know, I didn't I mention either earlier, my, my dad passed away at the beginning of COVID, so add that to being empty nesters in COVID and being a middle-class white male. Everything was kind of pointing at, you know, you've got problems, you know, you're not following the mold, and so, um, yeah, I've, I've had a lot. I've finally kind of been able to get in touch with my emotions, but that brings doubt and struggles and so that's that's just challenging yeah, right so sure. and i and i didn't like the fact that you asked me to come and share about this <laughs> today yeah but i knew it was the right thing yeah. <laughs> um we have different stories in the sense that it's like it seems like you've been kind of waffling back it's like i like burned it all down <laughs> when I, I like, I lost it all. And in that process of like burning it all down, it was, it felt like a free fall where it's like, I don't know how to be a mom if I'm not a Christian mom. I don't know how to be a wife. If I'm not a Christian wife. Like it had been such a deep part of my identity that it just felt like I was really scary, free falling. And that I thought, like, oh, this is going to be like a bounce and hit the bottom and, like, come back even better. And then it was, like, three years, and I was like, I am still free-falling. And then it just turned to apathy for about a year because it was like, I can't handle free-falling anymore. I just don't even care. I can't even think about it anymore. But the crazy thing has been in the process of rebuilding my faith, it's been equally as exhilarating for me to rebuild and reimagine. It's been equally as exhilarating as that free fall. Mm. And I remember I listened to a podcast and Rob Bell made a, a comment about how his interior was infinite. And it just like instantly floated. It was mm. like, oh my gosh, I know that of myself. I know that I have an infinite interior and nobody gave it to me. I didn't get it when I said a prayer at a certain age. I didn't lose it when I deconstructed. I have it always within me. And the crazy thing has been my realization that everyone has it in them, mm. that I don't have to work to give anyone else their infinite interior, that like we're born with it. My children have it. It's not my job to give that to my children because they're inherently born with it. And so that realization for me of, it's like the analogy I use in my head is like a deep ocean within myself and that it's an infinite place that I can go to. And I lost a lot of my practices when I lost my faith. I lost like how to connect with that. I wasn't praying anymore. I wasn't having communion. I wasn't doing worship. It's like I was, didn't have a sacred text. And I stopped connecting with that. And as I've also met with um, a counselor person, and it's like that discovery has been equally exhilarating. So anyone out there who's in the free fall or whatever stage you're in, just know that um, when you are ready to rebuild, which may take years and years, it can be as exhilarating as mm. the fall. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, 
So I, I love that, uh, like you had mentioned, your stories are different, right? So there's been seasons, seasons of maybe where faith feels more accessible, you're living into it a little bit more, and then seasons of doubt and potentially loneliness and isolation, and then a season where you burned it all down. <laughs> so um, what's interesting is both of you are still here, or you are here, right? You're at this place, you've connected with this uh, church community for whatever reason you have. I guess my question is, amidst your doubt, amidst the seasonal aspects of that, amidst burning it all down, why are you still grounded? Why are you still connected here when it would maybe be easier to not be? So I was really lucky when I burned it all down, I was a part of this really diverse (coughs) church where it wasn't like I, w- I was the outsider. Hmm. Like, we were all the outsiders. <laughs> like, there was people from all over the spectrum. And so when I deconstructed, I still felt at home in my community. And it wasn't like everybody else believes one thing and I'm over here now believing something else. And so I felt like I could stay there. And... Um, when we were trying out new churches after our church dissolved, it was like, we all just struggled with like, where are we gonna go? We come from this wild, crazy, intimate place. And um, I remember Russ saying in one of his sermons, I don't know if it was a quote that he said or if he said it, but he just encouraged us, like, if you have a lingering question, if you have a nagging question, to not give up on it, that it has something to teach you. And um, I loved that, just, like, not being scared to lean into those, like, quiet questions that you have, that there's, like, permission um, to follow those. And I don't agree with everything that I hear at New Community. And I don't want to. I don't want to to be in a place that all believes the same thing at all times so that when one person believes something out of line, they're no longer welcome. And you guys talk about unity over uniformity, and it's like, I want to be in a place that can still be together even if we don't agree with each other. And so even though it was a little bit tempting to, like, not rejoin a church whenever our church dissolved... I do feel this wanting to be, if I want the church to be a more beautiful, diverse place, then like I want to put myself on the line and even if it's uncomfortable, to not completely agree with everything. Um, Meredith, you used the term, I think, free falling. (laughs) I, I used the term over the last few years that I didn't feel like I had anything, any frame of reference. So I, even though our stories are definitely different, our background's different, um, that was the terminology I used. So to the question of what's kept me grounded, um, a lot of, lot of things. So I think definitely my wife has kept me grounded. Uh, she pushes me. She challenges me, but most of all, um, she's, she's loved me, and she's stuck by me, and she's shared through a lot of tough stuff over the last few years, and um, I think we deal with things very differently. Probably doubt, my doubt scares her, and, you know, and I don't like that, but I also realize that, you know, I've just got to get to the right spot. Um, I, uh, one phrase stuck in my mind over the probably two, three years ago as we were going through a lot in COVID and, and with our kids, just everything being a, a question or pushing back on what they grew up with. And, you know, I'd spent the previous 20 years trying to tell them what to do and trying to give them guidance and connect them with the right friends and pastors and all this. Um, the phrase that stuck with me was just listen, love, and, and pray, right? I, you know, I don't have anything to give. Anything that's given is 
really, I believe, got to come from God. And, and if my kids want it, they'll seek it out. Um, and, and that's been, it's been a hard thing, but um, that's a phrase, I, I might have heard it in a, some book on tape I was listening to, I don't know, <laughs> but um, that, so that's helped ground me. I think uh, Kevin and I met a couple times this last year and had lunch, and one thing Kevin shared that st you stuck out to me is that um, this is a community that is a lot more about raising questions and evaluating questions than it is about providing direct answers. Mm -hmm. And while I would have hated that 25 years ago, um, it's exactly where, where I'm at and where I need. And so I've appreciated that. That's kind of helped ground me and saying it's okay to, to, to question and wrestle with things and, and still love God and love Jesus. Um, I do, I, another thing is every time I read the scriptures and it seems like now more than ever, I see that the apostles struggled with their faith and Peter in particular. And um, I, I love seeing it, all those scriptures where, and even the one you shared, where, where they're challenged, where they doubt, where they've seen all these things. That is, that more than anything probably grounds me. Um, I'm part of a small group here right now, just meeting for the past few weeks, and there's a book Brennan Manning wrote um, that we've been going through. And it's really refreshing too because he talks about being real and having questions and really um, trying not to hide ourselves before yeah. God and just to be real. And, and he loves us with all our sins and our, our failings and our doubts. And um, yeah, so I think a whole bunch of things, right? It's not that that doubt isn't there. Uh, I don't like it, but it's it's still around. But yeah, I think a lot of things through people, through readings, through church have really helped ground me. Um, <clears throat> that's all the questions I have. Was there any final thoughts before I, I try to uh, bring a little bit of closure here? I guess my last thought would just be that we were talking before and it's like it's okay to be somewhere when you're 12 and when you're 32 and when you're 52 and when you're 82 that that's like normal and natural yeah. and if someone in your life is going through doubt one big thing is reminding them that they're safe that it's yeah. totally safe and normal to have those questions Yeah, and I would share that there's, I'm happy to talk to anybody, you know, if you want to develop a, a friendship and meet and, and talk through things. I, you know, what I've, I've realized over the last few years is, is I need just people that'll listen to me and be my friend and pray for me. So um, I've been through a lot, you know, but maybe not as much as some people, maybe more. I think it's, it's way more impactful to me when I've had friends that I've developed that could share their stories and struggles and just, and we could develop that. So that offers out there. Um, I know that's kind of weird and sharing that with a whole group <laughs> of people I don't know. Um, and, it, and it doesn't come quickly and easy, and, but I really, I'm not about just trying to, give people a, a short two-sentence answer. Yeah. So, so I'm happy to do that if, if anybody out there wants to talk. Yeah. Uh, one of the things, um, Eric, you mentioned was this idea of um, the support you felt from Kendra and this idea of getting to the right spot. <clears throat> the only thing I would say is you're at the right spot. And I think that's a really like important distinction to make is that we're not trying to get to a a specific point, but that Jesus actually meets us where we're at, and uh, there is a ton of freedom, I think, that comes from that, and so um, 
thank you both so much for sharing, for being vulnerable around a topic that is often not talked about in church. I think that takes a lot of courage. Uh, I, I admire that very, very much. Let us thank uh, both of these individuals. It is my goal over the next few moments to just kind of wrap up uh, what we have been experiencing together, what we've been hearing, uh, stories, uh, testimonies of life and faith, and um, that is my hope. Um, I want to start with this little line that I think uh, is significant to hold the full mystery of faith is always to embrace its other half, which is the equal mystery of doubt, right? To hold the full mystery of faith, which is what we want to hold, to like embrace the wonder and the curiosity and the, the mystery of faith is always to embrace the other half, which is the equal mystery of doubt. Uh, I deeply appreciate, and I assume you do too, uh, the honesty and the vulnerability of both Meredith and Eric, the willingness to get in front of us and to share. Um, and I, I hope that it resonated with you in the same way that I know it resonated with me. Uh, because in, especially in religious contexts, uh, it is difficult to admit doubt, uncertainty, questioning, tension, I mean, Meredith even talked about it as like it was a part of my identity. It was who I was. How do I get rid of that? And if you've spent any length of time in a religious community, whether you got there in your 20s or started there when you were two, uh, any amount of time leads to this internal pressure to not express anything than rock-solid certainty and you certainly wanna, wouldn't want to say that you're free-falling, right? Like, or that you're unsure, or that you lost all structure, right? Now, we drew our passage or our ideas or this, this concept of doubt and faith from the text this morning. That's this story in Mark. Kevin read it a little bit before, but it's this man who comes to Jesus, and he says, like, I've gone to the disciples, and nothing happened. And I'm coming to you, and I'm desperate, and here's my son, and our life is ruined, and I have deep doubt, and Jesus says, I'm going to take care of it. And he says, I believe, but help my unbelief. And I just love this expression of this mystery of both faith and doubt happening at the same time. And this passage is directly connected to another one in Matthew, Matthew 17. And what we get in Matthew 17, we'll see it on the screen here in a moment, what we get out of Matthew 17 is this like deeper look at Jesus' behind-the-scenes conversation with the disciples. Everything's happened the same way as in our story in Mark. But then we read this, And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately. So this is on the down low, and we're getting the inside peek about this conversation and they're like we couldn't cast out the demon in our text it reads uh, that's because these only come out by faith and prayer or prayer and fasting in some readings this one says because of your little faith for truly I say to you if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed you will say to this mountain move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you amazing. Now recently this passage moved from, for me, from being one of my least favorite passages as it relates to faith in the Bible, to one of the passages that gives me the most encouragement and the most excitement about faith and doubt that I've ever had before. Honestly. So let me start off by telling you why I hate this passage. And that's okay to say, right? Like, I hated this passage for a long time. Because I think this passage has us thinking of faith in measurement terms. What I mean by that is Jesus is using this proverbial idea of a mustard seed being this expression of the smallest of things. And in Jesus' time, that would be an illustration. It made a lot of sense that there's a very little thing, like a mustard seed, 
that is what I'm expressing about faith. And so what we do is we then create this assumption that the very benefits that God gives me hinge on the amount of my faith. And if it could be a mustard seed, then like at least we're, we're making some progress, right? And what we do is we, I think in religious circles, we have a bit of what I would call this imaginary like faithometer, this thing that doesn't exist, but it somehow measures the quantity and the quality of your faith. And if you have a little bit like it builds up and this faithometer grows and you're like, yes, I have more. And then when you start to lose it, it like it shrinks and you're like, oh no, got to refill that. We got to figure out how to refill it. And I've, I've heard it expressed a little bit like the engine that could, if you've read that book. The I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, right? Like, I think I can, I think I can muster up just enough faith, even a tiny mustard seed of faith. And then when I do, things won't be as bad, and I'll never struggle, and I'll never doubt, and I'll never question. And maybe you get to the point where we heard earlier, I just couldn't do it any longer. I just couldn't. But we think that if we, if we somehow, that if things aren't going well in life, what it probably means is I've got a lack of faith. If I'm not quite getting what I hoped for from God, it means that I'm lacking in faith. And if I could pray more and serve more and give more and do more and hope more, like somehow it'll come good, Right? And this passage maybe even has you thinking, it's almost like a secondary implication that if Jesus is saying to the disciples who are walking with him and doing miracles and writing text and like insane, right? These people that are like, oh wow, it's the disciples. If he's saying to the disciples, I'm going to scold you for your faith, how much more will he say to me? He'll scold me. He'll shame me. He'll say, look, you, you don't even have the tiniest amount of faith. What are you doing? You need more, right? And so we get this idea that if I could just have the right quality or the right quantity, somehow life will be good. I think this passage also tends to have us profoundly self-absorbed and demanding certainty. It's another reason I hate this passage, because what you notice is that when you're constantly worried about mustering up enough faith or right belief, then the thing that consumes you is actually just yourself. What I mean by that is you begin to think just of you. You're measuring yourself. You're comparing yourself with someone else and their faith compared to yours. Maybe you're judging yourself, just wishing you had more, and, and like shaming yourself into saying, if I could just do these things or change these things, then my faith meter will grow more. And you're asking, do I believe enough? Am I sure enough? And do I know the right things? What that happens when we do that is we start to believe that God places a premium on certainty. That if I could just be certain, and that somehow faith really doesn't just desire it, it almost demands certainty. And if I'm so certain about something that, that, that what ends up happening is I tend to view any other perspective other than the one I currently have as a threat to the certainty of my faith. Which, if you've been around the church for any length of time, usually leads to disagreement about theology and beliefs, which leads to fracture and disenfranchisement with the church, which leads to frustration because any form of doubt, any questioning, any wondering must mean shame, must mean God disappointed, must mean no approval. And so it's no wonder that what we have done is we have somehow tied our very belief to this eternal favor of God and it banks uncertainty. It's, it's almost as if when Eric expressed, like if I 
could just get to the right spot, then it would change, right? But I don't think that's the goal. Instead of faith as a life orientation or instead of faith as a framework of values and spirituality or a commitment to live into the deep vision of the kingdom of God and what it's called to be, we find ourselves, instead of looking for things that float, we find ourselves with self-absorbed certainty. So those are the reasons that I have for long disliked this passage. But I want to tell you in just a moment why it is like one of my most encouraging, exciting passages about faith and doubt. And in order to do that, you have to geek out with me just for a moment and be a bit of a nerd because it's all tied to language, grammar, tenses, verbs, Greek, all that nerdy stuff, okay? So here's what you need to hear. Just like in English, Greek has tenses and certain tenses adjust the entire meaning of the passage, okay? So, many of you know there's a thing called future tense, and when this future tense, that is this passage, if we're looking at it that way, we would understand that it's a future conditional clause, okay? I know it's nerdy, but it's okay. Future conditional clause, which means we read it this way. If you were to have the faith of a mustard seed, which is implying what? That you don't have the faith of a mustard seed. But if at some point in the future you do, then, awesome, right? Because then you could move mountains. Because then something great could happen if and when you get to the place that you have the faith of a mustard seed. Now, there's also a a thing called present tense. Present tense would be according to present reality conditional clause, okay? Which means you would read it this way. If you have the faith of a mustard seed and you do, then you could say to a mountain, move, and it would move, okay? Those are the two options. Future conditional clause, if someday you have this, it will change your life. According to the present reality conditional clause, if you have it and you do. So here's my questions. Any guesses as to which tense it is? Yeah. Now, you may have heard your entire life that it is a future tense. It is 100% in this passage, and 100% in the passage also in Luke, that is the exact same phrase, it is present reality. Meaning, Jesus is not scolding them for not having even the tiniest amount of faith. What he is affirming to the disciples is they already have the faith to do what is expected. So in essence, Jesus is implying that they don't need more faith. They just simply need to realize that they already have the faith. And it's even the smallest amount, and that is totally enough. It is as if Jesus is saying to you in this moment, how much faith do you have? And your expression back is like, ah, not very much. I got a bunch of doubt, and I'm wondering, and I don't know, and it doesn't feel like much at all. And I looked at this faith meter, and it's down to like zero and it feels really bad, and he's going, oh, so maybe just like a teeny little mustard seed kind of thing? And you're like, yes, exactly. And he's like, great, that's more than enough. That's all we needed. In fact, you already have it. Congrats. Everything you ever needed is here in this moment. The faith that you were like wondering, can I get it at some point? Don't need to worry about that because you have it. It's already yours. That's what he's saying in this moment. It is unbelievable. So when you're like going, I, I don't know, like if I could just, and he's going, yeah, that's, that's more than enough. More than enough to move mountains. More than enough for whatever it is that just a minute ago, when we're reading those lyrics, you're thinking to yourself, I don't know. I don't know. I, got, I wonder, I have doubts, I question, and he's going, that's okay. Yeah, that's right where you want to be. Because here's the thing, 
Jesus is directing our attention not to the quality or the quantity or the strength of your belief or of your faith. He is directing it to the object of your faith, right? So what he's saying is, even if your faith is as small as a mustard seed, doesn't matter because it's not dependent on you. The object of your faith isn't you. The object of your faith isn't how much faith you have. The object of your faith is me, Jesus, right? And that changes everything. So when, when this man is saying, I, I, I believe, help my unbelief, he's saying one of the most beautiful things because he's not working off of measurement terms. He's not working off of, like, do I have the right quantity or the quality? He's working off of relational terms. I believe something, but I struggle with that something, and what I need is you. And as our relationship with Jesus grows, as our understanding and awareness of who God is grows, what happens is the very teeny mustard seed faith that you already have expresses itself in this incredibly powerful, dynamic way because it's based on relationship. Relationship with the Almighty Beautiful, inspiring, fully believing in you, completely aware of any shortcoming, and yet completely doesn't care about it because what he cares about is you. And into that relationship, that empowering space, God says you have more than enough. So keep walking with me. That's what faith is. I want to finish with this quote. Because I just love how the quote calls us to be able to sit in a space that, that traditionally we're not called to sit in. It says this, What has happened to our ability to dwell in unknowing, to live inside a question and coexist with the tensions of uncertainty? Where is our willingness to incubate pain and let it birth something new? What has happened to patient unfolding and to endurance? These things are what form the ground of waiting. And if you look carefully, you'll see that they're also the seedbed of creativity and growth. What allows us to do the daring and to break through to newness. Creativity flourishes not in certainty, but in questions. Growth germinates not in tent dwelling, but in upheaval. Yet the seduction is always security rather than venturing, instant knowing rather than deliberate waiting. New community, may we be a people that do not long to dwell in a, tw a tent, but long for venturing, that don't seek security, but rather are okay and comfortable with deliberate waiting, because it is in those spaces that we meet God. It is in those spaces that the relationship with God flourishes, that faith expands, and that the mustard seed actually grows to the largest bush or tree that it could. Because it's not dependent on you. It's simply dependent on the all-powerful, loving, generous God that we love and follow. Amen?